This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime, so you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Hey everyone, this is Nicole Auerbach, and welcome to the first episode of The Coaches Clubhouse, a new podcast from SiriusXM where we're examining what drives coaches on and off the sidelines. The coaches we'll talk to represent many different sports, backgrounds, and hobbies. Some have been coaching for decades, and some are just starting their careers. Some knew they wanted to be a coach from a young age, and some are still trying to figure out exactly how that happened. The unifying factor is that they're all passionate, and passionate people tend to inject that passion into every aspect of their lives. A lot of the conversations you'll hear in this series are generally lighthearted and wide-ranging, but we wanted to start the series with a coach who's become a leader in this current historical moment. After fewer than two full seasons as the head coach of the Atlanta Hawks, Lloyd Pierce has become a leading voice among NBA coaches in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and during the current Black Lives Matter movement. He's spoken at protests in Atlanta, is part of a new committee on racial injustice and reform in the NBA Coaches Association, and has even helped turn the State Farm Arena into what will become the largest polling place in the state for the upcoming general election in November. He talks to us about how his background shaped the leader he's become today the importance of diverse views within a franchise, and how he uses his love of music to build the culture of his team. Here is my conversation with Lloyd Pierce. I guess I want to start at the beginning of, of when did you realize that, that you wanted to coach? Very late, actually. I started, I uh, graduated in college and played about three or four years. I actually did an internship with Morgan Stanley Dean Witter my first year out of college in San Jose and then uh, played for about four years. And my head coach in college just kind of presented it to me. You know, he said, whenever you're done playing and when you fully commit to to being done playing, he said, I think you should get into coaching and I'll have a spot for you. And that's really how it happened. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up son of a coach. I didn't grow up wanting to be a coach or, ch- or chasing that path. Uh, he presented an option. Uh, I thought about it. I went and played uh, or extended my career, played in Germany. And then um, I was in between deciding on, you know, moving on and still trying to play. And I actually went out to, to Ankara, Turkey, and I was uh, about to join a first division team out there and was there for about a week and said, I'm done. This isn't, this isn't for me anymore. Uh, I didn't want to spend the next 10 months in Ankara, Turkey. And, um, you know, I had lots of thoughts about getting into coaching and the offer that coach gave me and uh, came back and took him on his offer. And that's kind of how it started. What do you think having a, a, a playing career that took you to places like Turkey um, and, and Germany and places like how does that help you connect with players of I would imagine all different abilities, levels, um, experiences that get them to the point where you're meeting them and interacting with them? Well, I mean, I think in anything, you know, having a, a diverse uh, crowd and diverse audience, a diverse group um, expands your horizons a little bit. And so to play in Germany, um, you know, eight of our 10 guys were German and my other 
you know, two or three teammates, uh, 11, 12 teammates, whatever we had. Uh, you have about eight Germans. I had a Croatian teammate, a Spanish teammate, and another American teammate. And so just in that small group, you have a little mini melting pot and you get a lot of differences in opinion and, and, and uh, upbringings and things of that nature. And so when you've done that a few times, and, and I grew up that way, I grew up in California, uh, which is an extreme melting pot in the Bay Area, you, you basically you're used to understanding or at least the attempt to understanding different cultures and, and backgrounds of, of some of your friends and interactions that you have with people. And so when you bring a team together, like, like we have in Atlanta, um, where we have a lot of young guys, you try and diversify with, with older guys, you try and diversify with international players. And we've had some of that, you know, Jeremy Lin, uh, Chinese and Taiwanese American born player. Uh, Alex Lin was from Ukraine. And so you, you mix in the different personalities and cultural backgrounds and, and you try and expand on that. When I was in Philly, you know, we probably had the biggest melting pot of players. Uh, when I was in Philadelphia with Ben Simmons from Australia and Ursan and Furkan from, from Turkey and Joel from Cameroon. And, you know, the list goes on and on. And you just really understand uh, how valuable that is to have different personalities and cultural backgrounds in a locker room. It's funny you're mentioning all these guys that I covered in college and, and then forget that they're on the same team and kind of creating these melting pots together. But it feels like that's one of the best things about coaching in the NBA, I would think, is interacting with so many different people from so many places. I mean, and most of your coaching career has been in the NBA. Is that one of the things that drew you to that instead of saying in college coaching or like when, when you decided to get into coaching, did you think about those paths? No, I mean, th these are the things you learn along the way. Um, I didn't get into coaching with the with the goal of being an NBA head coach either. You know, like I said, I got into coaching very late. I think it was 26 or 27 when I first started. And it wasn't a pathway that was that, that had me ending up as a head coach in the NBA. It was really just staying connected with the sport. Um, but at, along the way of coaching and 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 being amongst different personalities, uh, different ethnicities, different upbringings, then you start to realize how important some of those things are uh, in terms of enhancing the dynamic of your, your team and the chemistry of your team, getting to know different people from different backgrounds. And it changes, you know, in the NBA, the locker room changes every year. You add pieces, you subtract pieces, uh, brings in different personalities, bring in different talent. And so you have to be pretty fresh with, with your approach every year and, and, and you learn from your players just as much as they learn from the coaches. With with such a young team that you mentioned, I mean, there's there's so much going on in the world and we're going to talk about your involvement, you know, with the league and within Atlanta, but how do you talk to them about, you know, what's happening in the world? How, how do they respond? I mean, it, it, we're in this era where there's so much more athlete empowerment and people are talking about police brutality and racial injustice, but I'm sure it's even a little bit different with the, with the younger roster kind of being thrust into this where they could have these platforms and, and make statements. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try and get our guys to use their voice as often as they can. It's, it's kind of the education in professional sports, um, taking ownership of what you do on the court and, and really buying into that, that um, accountability aspect of team sports, you know, holding each other accountable, being held accountable, which means you've got to use your voice. You got to speak up. You got to say things that um, you probably didn't or aren't used to saying on a normal basis. But I think we're all seeing what's going on in our world together. Uh, with the pandemic, with the coronavirus, with the racial pandemic and the racial injustice. Uh, all of these things are happening at once. And, you know, it's affecting us all, obviously, in different ways, but it's affecting us. And um, 
you know, for me, I have to exemplify the things that I'm asking them to do, which is to use their voice, to speak up, to be active, to be engaged, to be educated. And so when we have our conversations and our, our weekly Zoom meetings, uh, a lot of it is focused on that, you know, what's going on in the world? How are you feeling? Any thoughts? What can we do? Uh, and, it, and it's led by me expressing, you know, what I've gone through the last week and what I'm trying to do uh, with the coaches committee, with the organization, uh, how I feel individually as an African-American. And so I try and lead by example in terms of what I say, what I feel, expressing that just so they find comfort and an ability to do so as well. With with being in Atlanta, um, and I know you guys have done a lot of community outreach and, and building relationships in the in the two seasons that you've been there. Do you feel more of a responsibility to to lead on these issues with obviously what's what's happened there, but also just a predominantly black city? It's Atlanta. <laughs> you have to. Um you know, being in this city is 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 unlike any other city in terms of the the history, the rich history. Uh, in terms of the the demographics, you know, it is a predominantly African American city. There are a lot of small businesses owned by African Americans, uh, and there's a tremendous amount of support for those small businesses and major businesses here in the city that African American owned. But I think when you think of speaking out and speaking up, this city is known for that with the individuals, whether it's modern day, like like Killer Mike, or our mayor, Keisha Ladds-Bottoms, uh, or you know our should-be governor, Stacey Abrams, or uh, you think of the history and people like John Lewis and, and obviously Dr. Martin Luther King. But this this city is known for that that approach to civil rights and, and human rights and, and injustice. You know, it just kind of comes with the territory, I feel, when, when you're a significant influencer or a person of leadership here in the city of Atlanta, that uh, that's common territory for you to speak up and speak out. What are what are conversations like with your your owner, CEO? You know, like people who don't look like you, but are saying they want to be committed to change. Like, what what can like an NBA owner do to support change? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very collaborative right now. The conversations are about engaging with one another um, from a from an ownership standpoint, from a CEO running the business standpoint from a uh, employee such as myself uh, trying to lead our players, our team, and a public figure. I'm the guy that has to speak publicly the most, and so it's definitely collaborative in terms of you know what's most important of how we approach uh, some of the issues that's going on in our world, the, 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 the coronavirus and the pandemic and how we operate effectively and, and safely, the racial injustices, how we understand the needs and concerns that African-Americans have. And from an empathetic standpoint and uh, from an understanding standpoint, I think there's, there's really a, a true understanding that's necessary in our country right now that, that, that a lot of people are, are hoping is explained more, it's talked about more, and there's dialogue on that uh, much more than it has been in the past. And then uh, eventually, you know, what role can we play in um, securing opportunities, educational opportunities, um, empathetic opportunities for our local community and internally in our organization? How do we better ourselves internally as an organization of dealing with systemic racism and issues that may be of a concern for some and a lack of understanding for others. And so it's it's been a very collaborative effort to 
tackle all of these things. And, you know, for me specifically dealing with the, the racial injustice that, that we understand a lot better now, um, keeping that conversation alive, being able to communicate with, uh, with Tony Ressler and, and Steve Coonan, and also just address our team from our team, meaning our organization, uh, from a, a collaborative standpoint of, of what we want to do as model citizens of the city of Atlanta, but also as an organization, how we want to attack this. Uh, but it, it first starts with the self-reflection and the internal education of, of where we are as an organization and where we stand and how we can be better. And can you walk me through the organization that the NBA Coaches Association put together? I know you're very involved in that. What is like kind of the mission statement? What are, I mean, I'm sure it's again, a lot of conversations and planning at this point, but this seems like one of those spaces to, to actually enact change. Yeah, I mean, the mission is simple. It's, it's how do we collectively impact, create, build sustainable and lasting change for our for our local communities? You know, we represent 30 NBA cities through our through our NBA teams, and we have an opportunity collectively to, to really impact our country if we can do it. Uh, one coach, one team, uh, one small effort at a time to, to, to talk about racism, to build up trust in our local communities and to bring people together to have these tough but intentional conversations about systemic racism, blatant racism, you know, economic and, and, and educational opportunities for the African-American community, and then understanding for, for a lot of white Americans that, that are really seeing and understanding uh, the history and why we're in this position now. Uh, so I, I think it's uh, the opportunity for us to, to impact 30 cities in a lot of different ways and to, to, to do it as a collective unit is the goal. We're used to going out in our communities and building courts and, and doing clinics and speaking to youth organizations and schools and being a presence. Uh, but I think there's an intentional focus that we have with regards to doing that specifically on racism and providing, um, you know, some sort of uh, connection for us with the, with the communities, but also for us with law enforcement uh, so that, you know, we can also address that issue as well. And so there's a lot of different avenues that each city and each coach will take on in each organization, but we wanted to first come together and be unified in our approach and then try and have a guided plan of how we can tackle it um, individually as well. Do you think you could see NBA players sit out to focus on social justice reform the same way we've seen in the WNBA? I mean, maybe not like to the extreme like Maya Moore. I don't know if she's ever going to come back to basketball, but really prioritizing these issues. Yes. You know, I think right now it's it's still kind of a movement. I think it's still kind of a, a hot topic. And, you know, because of the incidents that have occurred and the the reaction to those incidents, you know, we're still in the middle of the the intro to protesting, um, you know, the deaths occurred, the protests occurred, there were more issues that came as a result of the protest. People are now starting to take these items to legislate, to the legislator's office and try and get some things reformed and changed. Um, but at some point, you know, people won't be on the streets as much and, you know, we'll go back to normal life. We won't be sheltered in. It's at that point and, and during that time, we'll see what type of change we've been able to affect and what things are still infuriating, which there still will be a lot. And what is the response of, of the general public? Uh, not just the people that are you know, connected, but the people that are fighting for others that are being introduced to the injustices that we're seeing. Uh, are they still finding ways to, to protest and march and, and affect change? And you know, when we get to that point, 
and when the topic shifts to something else, you know, I think we'll see a response from people that are passionate and feel like they should and can do more. And, and, and I think that's where we'll see, you know, whether it's in the NBA or NFL or whatever, I think we'll start to see people have found their passion and want to be like Maya Moore and, and really move on to the next chapter in their life, which is to service the civil rights and, and human rights of others to deal with this in a, in a much more formal manner. I'm also very excited to get to the point where now that people finally understand the point of a peaceful protest and a kneeling during the anthem, that people stop debating if it's disrespectful and actually go back to the actual topics. It feels like there was that shift in public opinion or at least understanding of what Colin Kaepernick was trying to get across. And now when I think teams and players kneel during the anthem or bring these issues up, I feel like there's a different understanding. Hopefully that continues over. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't think it it will not immediately. Yeah. Not, people have a greater understanding of what kneeling uh, was about, but there's still a lack of understanding of a lot of other things. And so it may not be the kneeling anymore. It could be as simple as the protest. Everyone thinks the protests are are about looting and whatever, and it's not. That's yeah. not the case either. And so then it it becomes about you know there's a number of things that get shifted and. You try and take away the original intent and argument and shift it to something else. And none of it's about that. It's all about, you know, racial injustice. It's all about understanding the history of African-Americans and the suffering that, that, that they, we've had to deal with and, and trying to find leverage of economic access and educational access and healthcare access and things of that nature. And why we're saying, <laughs> you know, changing one bill is not enough. Kneeling is not enough. Um, dealing with law enforcement and how African-Americans feel targeted, feel, you know, profiled, feel discriminated against. Um, that George Floyd death is not the first time we've seen it. We've seen it in lynchings. We've seen it in executions. We've seen it in mass incarceration. Um, so this one incident is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a collection of things throughout our history. And, you know, again, these things get shifted because, uh, we make it about the kneeling or we make it about, you know, whether or not the taser was used properly mm -hmm. that's not the case. Uh, we don't want to be in this situation. And that's what we're fighting for. Uh, my colleague at The Athletic, Chris Kirshner, tells me you're a big reader. And I I'm curious for those listening to the podcast who might be looking. I, I know all of the there's a lot of really great books that are on these bestseller lists right now. But I'm wondering what you would recommend if, you know, in these topics, if people want to educate themselves about, you know, the history of systemic racism or for those who want to educate themselves more. Well, I mean, there's so many layers. Um, I just finished Stacey Abrams' book, Our Time Is Now, which talks about the voter suppression issues here in the state of Georgia. And I think to understand why it's important to vote, but to also understand what suppression actually looks like and feels like. And, and you know, I just initially you just think it's, oh, you know, they're not counting the ballots, um, you know, denying the registration, exact match, making sure people have exactly the same name on their identification. You get married and you hyphenate your name and you show up, they won't let you, you know, that's suppression. There's so many different things that you learn about. And then also how to address it and how to uh, properly make sure your, your registration is being tracked. So that book is, is phenomenal when you talk about systemic racism and different ways, you know, it's being um, displayed. Uh, I finished uh, White Fragility. Um, I think Robin D'Angelo is her name. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of, of my white friends reach out and say, you know, I didn't know about Juneteenth. I didn't know, really, I don't know enough about African-American history 
and I don't know about white privilege as, as it's being explained now. And I think it's a very well-written book, um, even for me to understand, you know, the many forms of how white privilege is being uh, displayed and talked about and understanding that, you know, some things are, you know, they're not intentional, but they just, they're, they're just kind of subconsciously brought about, you know, the sense of belonging um, that African-Americans don't have, you know, to walk into a university and see a white professor and predominantly white demographic in the classroom, you know, there's a sense of belonging that white people don't know they benefit from that African-Americans and minorities uh, struggle with. Um, but it's a it's a it's a pretty good understanding of the differences that uh, a lot of us have in facing you know every day to day life. And then uh, there's a book. I mean, if you want to really go into the law enforcement and the racial profiling and the history of it and, and the understanding of the Michael Brown case and Tamir Rice and and um, you know things of that nature and the thing we're seeing now with George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks, um, a book was written by Mark Lamont Hill many years ago specifically with Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, uh, those, those incidents. And that book is called Nobody by Mark Lamont Hill, which I, I thought was a tremendous understanding of not only the incident, but, you know, the kind of the, um, you know, specifically with like with Michael Brown incident, how that city in Missouri became a um, lower income area. And, and mm. what led to that, which ultimately led to uh, low academic standards and uh, less opportunity to really get out of the city. And now you see, you know, why it's a high crime area and things of that nature. Um, the limited access, the systemic issues that, that that city was forced with way before the Michael Brown issue, uh, Michael Brown killing came up, uh, but ultimately tied into why that even occurred and why there was a disconnect in that city. Um, and then I read Malcolm Gladwell, which I think is a great book, Talking to Strangers, which is to me kind of a larger overview of how disconnected we are as a society, um, our inability to communicate with people we don't know, and specifically thinking of law enforcement dealing with um, African-Americans and that disconnect. You know, if I go into a neighborhood or a law, if I go into a neighborhood and I'm not well known or law enforcement that, that, that frequents that neighborhood doesn't know the community well, there's a huge disconnect. And so a simple traffic site siding or pull over for, you know, jaywalking or, you know, not having a signal on some, something as simple as that turns into death because there's a huge disconnect in how to communicate with one another. And that book really highlights that. So I, I recommend Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And I think in general, like, you know, these are books and these are, you know, what I've read. But I think when you think of education, um, these are great guides to um, tackle different issues because they all tie into the same thing. Um, but, but the best thing you can do is have dialogue and conversations, have tough conversations with your family and friends and just say the word race, talk about racism and then talk about systemic racism and see what different people say about the same issue. And you'll find it extremely difficult uh, for people to maintain that conversation. Uh, you'll find some opposing views that you may not agree with and I think having that type, those type of conversations is more educational um, as you do more and more research through books and articles and things of that nature. But that's really the point right now. There needs to be a greater understanding of um, the issues of racism and injustices and inequalities that we have in this country. And then we have to have a willingness to talk about it. Like, what have you learned about yourself, but also other activists, other people forcing these 
uncomfortable conversations that people need to have and speaking at protests. I know you've done that. As 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 a leader, as as a black leader, what do you, what do you learn about yourself and and others in those spaces like a killer Mike and and what he's been able to do and the issues he's been able to raise? Well, I mean, the first thing is I think it's almost imperative now that African Americans speak up. It starts with us having a willingness to speak up and speak out on things that matter and can affect us. It can affect me. Um, you know, racial profiling can impact me. You know, if I'm not speaking up on it and I'm not one of the people that's addressing it as a real issue, um, the unfortunate side is that <laughs> I may be a victim of it. And so it's important to speak up on it so that other people um, who won't be a victim of it or or, or or less likely to be a victim of it understand where we're coming from when you say things of that nature of systemic racism, blatant racism, law enforcement uh, profiling and discrimination um, and the possibility of that. So I, I think it's important, you know, when someone like Killer Mike is speaking so passionately about something that truly matters to him as an African-American man, that's a sign and an encouragement for others to do the same. And hopefully if I'm speaking up and speaking out, that's a sign of encouragement for others, my players, my coaches, our organization to speak up as well. And the more people we have that are in the fight, the better. I was just wondering broadly, like how you view music in your life and, and different artists that you've interacted with or, or even albums or things that have impacted you personally in your life. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a, big music guy anyways and have always been and I've always kind of found the value in in true artistry uh, true musicianship if that's a word I, I value especially in the hip-hop world you know the better lyricists and things that have substance and so it's ironic that I end up here in Atlanta because growing up a lot of the music that I preferred were were, were the artists out of Atlanta you know, I grew up a big Rakim fan who's from New York, who's kind of my original uh, favorite rapper. And then I grew up a big Outkast, Organized Noise fan, Outkast and Goody Mob specifically. And I just thought Outkast brought kind of a unique flavor to hip hop, very straightforward, very common um, conversation was about, you know, what they knew, but it was well written, it was well said, well stated. And, and then Goody Mob, was, was kind of a, a spinoff of that same vibe, but very conscious, very spiritual, very self-reflective in terms of their, their upbringing here in the South, here in Atlanta, how they viewed the world as African-Americans uh, from a very spiritual and, and self-reflective manner. And, and I, I think, um, you know, the stuff we're dealing with right now is very, very much a lot of what Goody Mob talked about. And, and I, I've always kind of appreciated that version of music where it made you think um, you appreciated the the intertwining of the words to make sense and have purpose. And they're, they're obviously one of my favorite groups. So I know you went to uh, Paisley Park as a, as a team this last year. D is it true that some of those guys, you've got young guys on your team, that they did not know really who Prince was? No, they knew who Prince was. They, they didn't know like verbatim his songs. They grew up knowing some of the more popular stuff, but not really the, the legendary status that Prince had. Um, you obviously know Michael Jackson in that sense. And for my generation, you know, you, you almost think of Michael and Prince kind of as the two icons in, in R&B, but they, they, they all knew who Prince was. They just weren't as familiar with, you know, who he was as a true artist. Did, did you get to teach them? 
the place speaks for itself. I mean, we're in the studios, we're seeing all the plaques, uh, you're seeing the, the, um, the theater that he would perform in at Paisley Park, which was just remarkable. And then you're seeing the club. And so you kind of just, you can see his vision, you can see his studio and how he worked. And then when you hear his music, it makes a little more, it makes more sense. Now, do they go out and buy Prince albums after, or are they listening? I don't know. <laughs> I think there's a, there, I would hope there's a, 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 a sense of respect um, after touring what was his home and seeing what he invested into his work. I, I think there's, from an artist standpoint, there's got to be some form of respect there. Obviously, I think there's a, there's a lot of, we, we talked a lot about culture and, and cultural impacts through music, through what the NBA means to so many people. Why, and I guess it's kind of an easy question, but why go on trips like that? Why, why add things like that as an NBA team to experience? I mean, how much can you and your players gain from trips like that? Bill's character, bottom line. Building character is not only done on the court, and it's probably done more off the court than it is on the court. If you have high character players, high IQ players, high IQ people, um, your chances of winning increase. And for me, it's important to build character, um, to show them what show them what a, a true professional who's passionate about his skill and his craft looks like. That's Prince. You know, we don't have to go to Michael Jordan's house every time we go to Chicago and, and look at Mike. Like, they know that already. What else is there? And so, you know, look at Prince, you know, to go down and, you know, we visit the Outcast mural and we listen to a lot of Outcast music and we had Killer Mike and Cujo Goody come and speak to our guys about what Outcast meant to them growing up in the city. Like that mutual respect of like, man, I didn't know these guys were great businessmen. I didn't know they had such history of, you know, the, the artistic side of who they are, not just the music. And so I think anytime you can find ways to, to expand, you know, what these guys think about, what our guys think about and, and show them what professionalism, respect, um, you know, anything that, that helps them think outside of the box, um, helps them build character. That was our interview with Lloyd Pierce. Check out all of our episodes on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I'll talk to you next time inside the Coach's Clubhouse.